You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Barry Eads. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930, by Various. Section 13. Jetta of the Lowlands, by Ray Cummings. Chapter 10. The Murder in the Garden. Hans, keep back. I will go. But, Commander. Armed? The hell he is not. Spawn said so. Spawn. Where is Spawn? He was here. I had dropped back from the window, and, gripping Jetta, stood in the center of the room. Jetta, dear. Oh, Philip. There's no other way out of here? No, no. Only the heavy sealed door and this broken window. The bandits in the garden had paused at sight of me. Someone had called. He may be armed, Abor. They had stopped their forward rush and darted into the shelter of the pergola. I might be armed. We could hear their low voices not ten feet from us, but I was not armed, except for my knife. Futile weapon, indeed. Jetta, keep back. If they should fire. I got a look through the oval. De Boer was advancing upon it, with his barreled projector half-leveled. He saw me again. He called. You, American, come out. I crouched on the floor, pushing Jetta back to where the shadows of the bed hid her. You, American. He was close outside the door. Come out, or I am coming in. I said abruptly, Come. My blade was in my hand. If he showed himself, I could slash his throat, doubtless. But what about Jetta? My thoughts flashed upon the heels of my defiant invitation. Suppose, as De Boer climbed in the window, I killed him. I could not escape, and his infuriated fellows would rush us, firing through the oval, sweeping the room, killing us both. But Jetta now was in no danger. Her father was outside, and these bandits were her father's friends. I would have to yield. I called louder. Why don't you come in? Could I hold them off? frighten them off for a time, and make enough noise so that perhaps someone passing in the nearby street would give the alarm and bring help. There was a sudden silence in the patio. The bandits had so far made as little commotion as possible. Presently I could hear their low voices. I heard an oath. De Boer's head and shoulders appeared in the window oval. His leveled projector came through. Perhaps he would not have fired, but I did not dare take the chance. I was crouching almost under the muzzle, so I straightened, gripped it, and flung it up. I then slashed at his face with my knife, but he gripped my wrist with powerful fingers. My knife fell as he twisted my wrist. His projector had not fired. It was jammed between us. One of his huge arms reached in and encircled me. Damn you! He muttered it, but I shouted, Fool! The boar! The bandit! I was aware of a commotion out in the garden. Bring on a Rita on our ears. De Boer, shut him up. I was gripping the projector, struggling to keep its muzzle pointed upwards. With a heave of his giant arms, De Boer lifted me and jerked me bodily through the window. I fell on my feet, still fighting. But other hands seized me. It was no use. I yielded suddenly. I panted. Enough. They held me. One of them growled. Another shout and we will leave you here dead. Commander, look. My shirt was torn open. The electrode band around my chest was exposed. De Boer towered head and shoulders over me. I gazed up, passive in the grip of two or three of his men, and saw his face. His heavy jaw dropped as he gazed at my little diaphragms, the electrode. He knew now for the first time that this was no private citizen he had assaulted. This official apparatus meant that I was a government agent. 
there was an instant of shocked silence an expression grim and furious crossed the giant bandit's face so this is it hans careful hold him jetta was still in her room silent now i heard spawn's voice close at hand in the patio de boer careful it was the most cautious of half whispers abruptly someone reached for my chest jerked at the electrode tore its fragile wires the tiny grids and thumbnail amplifiers jerked and ripped and flung the whole apparatus to the garden path but it sang its warning note as the wires broke up in great new york hanley knew then that catastrophe had fallen upon me for a brief instant the crestfallen bandit mumbled at what he had done then came spawn's voice got him de boer good triumphant spawn he advanced across the garden with his heavy tread and to me, and I am sure to De Boer as well, there came the swift realization that Spawn had been hiding safely in the background. But my detector was smashed now. It might have imaged De Boer assailing me, but now that it was smashed, Spawn could act freely. Good, so you have him. Make a way to the mine. I did not see De Boer's face at that instant, but I saw his weapon come up, an act wholly impulsive, no doubt, a flash of fury. He leveled the projector, not at me, but at the oncoming spawn. You damn liar! De Boer! It was a scream of terror from spawn, but it came too late. The projector hissed, spat its tiny blue puff. The needle drilled spawn through the heart. He toppled, flung up his arms, and went down, silently, to sprawl on his face across the garden path. De Boer was cursing, startled by his own action. The men holding me tightened their grip. I heard Jetta cry out, but not at what had happened in the garden. She was unaware of that. One of the bandits had left the group and climbed into her room. Her cry now was suppressed as though the man's hand went over her mouth, and in the silence came his mumbled voice. Shut up, you! There was the sound of a scuffle in there. I tore at the men holding me. Let me go! Jetta, come out! De Boer dashed for the window. I was still struggling. A hand cuffed me in the face. A projector rammed into my side. Stop it, fool American! De Boer came back with a chastened bandit ahead of him. The man was muttering and rubbing his shoulder, and De Boer said, Try anything like that again, Cartner, and I won't be so easy on you. De Boer was dragging Jetta, holding her by her wrist. She looked like a terrified half-grown boy, so small was she beside this giant. But the woman's lines of her, and the long, dark hair streaming about her white face and over her shoulders, were unmistakable. His daughter, De Boer was chuckling, the little Jetta. All this had happened in certainly no more than five minutes. I realized that no alarm had been raised. The bandits had managed it all with reasonable quiet. There were six of the bandits here, and a boar, who towered over us all. I saw him now as a swaggering giant of thirty-odd, with a heavy-set, smooth-shaved, handsome face. He held Jetta off. Damn, how you have grown, Jetta. Someone said, She knows too much. And someone else. We will take her with us. If you leave her here, De Boer, why should I leave her? Why? Leave her? For Perona? Then I think that for the first time Jetta saw her father's body lying sprawled on the path. She cried, Philip. Then she half turned and murmured, Father. She wavered, almost falling. Father. She went down, fainting, falling half against me and against De Boer, who caught her slight body in his arms. Come, we'll get back. Drag him. But you can't carry that girl out like that, De Boer. Into the house there is an open door. Hans, go out and bring the car around to this side. Give me the cloaks. There is no alarm yet. 
De Boer chuckled again. Perona was nice to keep the police off this street tonight. We went into the kitchen. An auto car, which, to the village people, might have been there on Spawn's mining business, slid quietly up to the side entrance. A cloak was thrown over Jetta. She was carried like a sack and put into the car. I suddenly found an opportunity to break loose. I leaped and struck one of the men, but the others were too quickly on me. The kitchen table went over with a crash. Then something struck me on the back of the head. I think it was the handle of De Boer's great knife. The kitchen and the men struggling with me faded. I went into a roaring blackness. End of Chapter 10 Chapter 11 Aboard the Bandit Flyer I was dimly conscious of being inside the cubby of the car, with bandits sitting over me. The car was rolling through the village streets, ascending. We must be heading for Spawn's mine. I thought of Jetta, then I heard her voice and felt her stir beside me. The roaring in my head made everything dreamlike. I sank half into unconsciousness again. It seemed an endless interval, with only the muttering hiss of the car's mechanism and the confused murmurs of the bandits' voices. Then my strength came. The cold sweat on me was drying in the night breeze that swept through the car as it climbed the winding ascent. I could see through its side oval a vista of bloated lowland crags with moonlight on them. It seemed that we should be nearly to the mine. We stopped. The men in the car began climbing out. De Boer's voice. Is he conscious now? I'll take the girl. Someone bent over me. You hear me? Yes, I said. I found myself outside the car. They held me on my feet. Someone gratuitously cuffed me, but De Boer's voice issued a sharp, low-toned rebuke. Stop it! Get him and the girl aboard. There seemed thirty or forty men gathered here, silent dark figures in black robes. The moonlight showed them, and occasionally one flashed a hand search-beam. It was De Boer's main party gathered to attack the mine. I stood wavering on my feet. I was still weak and dizzy, with a lump on the back of my head where I had been struck. The scene about me was at first unfamiliar. We were in a rocky gully, rounded broken walls, caves and crevices, dried ooze piled like a ramp up one side. The moonlight struggled down through a gathering mist overhead. I saw presently where we were, above the mine, not below it, and I realized that the car had encircled the mine's cauldron and climbed to a height beyond it. Down the small gully I could see where it opened into the cauldron about a hundred feet below us. The lights of the mine winked in the blurred moonlight shadows. The bandits led me up the gully. The car was left standing against the gully side where it had halted. De Boer, or one of his men, was carrying Jetta. The flyer was here. We came upon it suddenly around a bend in the gully. Although I had only seen the nose of it earlier in the evening, I recognized this to be the same. It was in truth a strange-looking flyer. I had never seen one quite like it. Barrel-winged, like a Janssen multi-propellered, and with folding helicopters for the vertical lifts and descent, and a great spreading fantail, in the British fashion. It rested on the rocks like a fat-winged bird with its long cylindrical body puffed out underneath. A seventy-foot cabin, fifteen feet wide, possibly. A line of small window ports, a circular glassite front to the forward control observatory cubby, with the propellers just above it, and the pilot cubby up there behind them and underneath the hole a landing gear of the Fraser mood spring cushion type, and an expanding air-coil pontoon bladder for landing upon water. All this was usual enough, 
Yet, with the brief glimpses I had as my captors hurried me toward the landing incline, I was aware of something very strange about this flyer. It was all dead black, a bloated-bellied black bird. The moonlight struck it, but did not gleam or shimmer on its black metal surface. The cabin window ports glowed with a dim blue-gray light from inside, but as I chanced to gaze at one, a green film seemed to cross it like a shadow, so that it winked and its light was gone. Yet a hole was there, like an eye socket, an empty green hole. We were close to the plane now, approaching the bottom of the small landing incline. The wing over my head was like a huge fat barrel cut lengthwise in half. I stared up, and suddenly it seemed that the wing was melting, fading. Its inner portion, where it joined the body, was clear in the moonlight, but the tips blurred and faded, an aspect curiously leprous, uncanny, gruesome. They took me up the landing incline. A narrow, vaulted corridor ran lengthwise of the interior along one side of the cabin body. To my left, as we headed for the bow control room, the corridor window ports showed the rocks outside. To the right of the corridor, the ship's small rooms lay in a string. A metal interior. I saw almost nothing save metal in various forms. Grid floor and ceiling. Sheet metal walls and partitions. Furnishings and fabrics, all of spun metal. And all dead black. We entered the control room. The two men holding me flung me in a chair. I had been searched. They had taken from me the tiny colored magnesium light flashes. How easy for the plans of men to go astray. Hanley and I had arranged that I was to signal the Puerto Rican patrol ship with those flares. Sit quiet, demanded my guard. I retorted, if you hit me again, I won't. De Boer came in, carrying Jetta. He put her in a chair near me, and she sat huddled tense. In the dim gray light of the control room, her white face with its big staring dark eyes was turned toward me, but she did not speak, nor did I. The bandits ignored us. De Boer moved about the room, examining a bank of instruments. Familiar instruments, most of them. The usual aero controls and navigational devices. A radio audiophone transmitter and receiver, with its attendant eavesdropping cutoffs. And there was an etherwave mirror grid. De Boer bent over it. And then I saw him fastening upon his forehead an image lens. He said, You stay here, Hans. You and Guterres. Take care of the girl and this fellow Grant. Don't hurt them. Guterres was a swarthy Latin American. He smiled. For why would I hurt them? You say he is worth much money to us, De Boer. And the girl, ah! De Boer towered over him. Just lay a finger on her and you will regret it, Guterres. You stay at your controls. Be ready. This affair, it will take no more than half an hour. A man came to the control room entrance. You come, Commander? Yes, right at once. The men are ready. From the mine we might almost be seen here. This delay. Coming, Rausch. But he lingered a moment more. Hans, my finder will show you what I do. Keep watch. When we come back, have all ready for flight. This Grant had an alarm detector. Heaven only knows what eavesdropping and relaying he has done. And for sure there is hell now in Spawn's garden. The Narita police are there, of course. They might track us up here. He paused before me. I think I would not cause trouble, Grant. I'm not a fool. Perhaps not. He turned to Jetta. No harm will come to you. Fear nothing. He wound his dark cloak about his giant figure and left the control room. In a moment, through the rounded observing pane beside me, I saw him outside on the moonlit rocks. 
His men gathered about him. There were forty of them, possibly, with ten or so left here aboard to guard the flyer. And in another moment the group of dark-cloaked figures outside crept off in single file like a slithering serpent, moving down the rock defile toward where in the cauldron pit the lights of the mine shone on its dark, silent buildings. End of Chapter 11 Chapter 12 The Attack on the Mine There was a moment when I had an opportunity to speak with Jetta. Gutierrez sat watchfully by the archway corridor entrance with a needle projector across his knees. The fellow Hans, a big, heavy-set half-breed Dutchman with a wide-collared leather jerkin and wide, knee-length pantaloons, laid his weapon carefully aside and busied himself with his image mirror. There would soon be images upon it, I knew. De Boer had the lens finder on his forehead, and the scenes at the mine, as De Boer saw them, would be flashed back to us here. This Gutierrez was very watchful. A move on my part, and I knew he would fling a needle through me. My thoughts flew. Hanley had notified Puerto Rico. The patrol ship had almost enough time to get here by now. I felt Jetta plucking at me. She whispered, They have gone to attack the mine. Yes. I heard it planned. Senor Perona. Her hurried whispers told me further details of Perona's scheme. So this was a pseudo-attack. Perona would take advantage of it and hide the quicksilver. De Boer would return presently and escape, and hold me for ransom. I chuckled grimly. Not so easy for a bandit, even one as clever as De Boer at hiding in the lowland depths, to arrange a ransom for an agent of the United States. Our entire lowland patrol would be after him in a day. Jetta's swift whispers made it all clear to me. It was Perona's scheme. She ended, And my father. Her voice broke, her eyes flooded suddenly with tears. Oh, Philip, he was good to me, my poor father. I saw that the mirror before Hans was glowing with its coming image. I pressed Jetta's hand. Yes, Jetta. One does not disparage the dead. I could not exactly subscribe to Jetta's appraisal of her parent, but I did not say so. Jetta, the mirror is on. I turned away from her toward the instrument table. Gutierrez at the door raised his weapon. I said hastily, Nothing. I... We just want to see the mirror. I stood beside Hans. He glanced at me, and I tried to smile ingratiatingly. This attack will be successful, eh, Hans? Damn, I hope so. The mirror was glowing. Hans turned a switch to dim the tube lights of the room so that we might see the images better. It brought a protest from Gutierrez. I swung around. I'm not a fool. You can see me perfectly well. Kill me if I make trouble. I want to see the attack. Por Dios, if you try anything. I won't. Shut, growled Hans. The audiophone is on. The big adventure. And the commander. Leaves me here just to watch. A slit in the observatory pane was open. The dark figure of one of the bandits on guard outside came and called softly up to us. Started, Hans? Starting. Should it go wrong, call out. Yes, but it will not. There was an alarm, relayed probably to Great New York. The commander said, from Spawn's Garden. These cursed prisoners. Shut. You keep watch out there. It is starting. The guard slunk away. My attention went back to the mirror. An image was formed there now, coming from the eye of the lens upon De Boer's forehead. It swayed with his walking. He was evidently leading his men, for none of them were in the scene. The dark rocks were moving past. The lights of the mine were ahead and below, but coming nearer. The audiophone hummed and crackled, and through it 
De Boer's low-voiced command sounded, To the left is the better path. Keep working to the left. The image of the rocks and the mine swung with a dizzying sweep as De Boer turned about. Then again he was creeping forward. The mine lights came closer. De Boer's whispered voice said, There they are. I could see the lights of the mine's guards flash on. A group of Spawn's men gathered before the smelter building. The challenge sounded. Who are you? Stop! And De Boer's murmur. That is correct, as Perona said. They expect us. Well, he ended with a sardonic laugh. Expect us. His projector went up. He fired. In the silence of the control room we could hear the audiophone hiss of it and see the flash in the mirror scene. He had fired into the air. Again his low voice to his men. Hold steady. They will run. The group of figures at the smelter separated, waved, and scattered back into the deeper shadows. Their handlights were extinguished, but the moonlight caught and showed them. They were running away, hiding in the crags. They fired a shot or two, high in the air. De Boer was advancing swiftly now. The image swayed and shifted, raised and lowered rhythmically as he ran, and the dark shape of the smelter building loomed large as he neared it. I felt Jetta beside me, heard her whisper, Why, he should attack and then come back. Greco told my father. But De Boer was not coming back. He was dashing for the smelter entrance. Spawn's guards must have known then that there was something wrong. Their shots hissed, still fired high, and our grid sounded their startled shouts. Then as De Boer momentarily turned his head, I saw what was taking place to the side of him. A detachment of the bandits had followed the retreating guards. The bandits' shots were leveled now, dim stabs of light in the gloom. One of the guards screamed as he was struck. The attack was real, but it was over in a moment. Spawn's men, those who were not struck down, plunged away and vanished. Perona had disconnected the mine's electrical safeguards. The smelter door was sealed, but it gave before the blows of a metal bar two of De Boer's men were carrying. In the unguarded open strongroom, Perona alone was absorbed in his task of carrying the ingots of Quicksilver down into the hidden compartment beneath its metal floor. Our mirror was vague and dim now with a moving interior of the main smelter room as De Boer plunged through. At the strong room entrance he paused, with his men crowding behind him. The figure of Perona showed in the vague light. He was stooping under the weight of one of the little ingots. Beside him yawned the small trap opening leading downward. He saw De Boer. He straightened, startled, and then shouted with a terrified Spanish oath. De Boer's projector was leveled. The huge, foreshortened muzzle of it blotted out half our image. It hissed its puff of light, a blinding flash in our mirror, in the midst of which the dark shape of Perona's body showed as it crumpled and fell. Like Spawn, he met instant death. Jetta was gripping me. Why? Gutierrez was with us. Hans was bending forward, watching the mirror. He muttered, Got him. I saw a chance to escape and pulled at Jetta, but at once Gutierrez stepped backward. Like him, I will strike you dead, he said. No chance of escape. I had thought Gutierrez absorbed by the mirror, but he was not. I protested vehemently. I haven't moved, you fool. I have no intention of moving. And now De Boer and his men were carrying up the ingots, a man for each bar, a confusion of blurred swaying shapes and low-voiced, triumphant murmurs from our disc. Then De Boer was outside the smelter house, and we saw a little queue of the bandits carrying the treasure up the defile, coming back here to the flyer. There was no pursuit. The mine guards were gone. The triumphant bandits would be here in a few moments. Ava Maria, que magnifico! 
Guterres had retreated to our doorway, more alert than ever upon me and Jetta. Hans called through the window slit. All is well, Franks. Got it? Yes. Make ready. There was a stir outside as several of the bandits hastened down the defile to meet De Boer, and the tread of others inside the flyer at their posts, preparing for hasty departure. Hans snapped off the audiophone and mirror. He bent over his control panel. All is well, Guterres. In a moment we start. Through the observatory window I saw the line of De Boer's men coming. Apparently Hans gave a cry. Look! A glow was in the room, a faint aura of light, and our disconnected instruments were crackling, murmuring with interference. Eavesdropping waves were here. Hans realized it, so did I. But there was no need for theory. From outside came shouts. Patrol ship! Hurry! The ship, suddenly exposing its lights, was perfectly visible above us, five thousand feet up, possibly. A tiny silver bird in the moonlight. But even with the naked eye I could see by its light pattern that it was the official Puerto Rican patrol liner. It saw us down here, recognized this bandit flyer, no doubt. And it was coming down. There was a confusion as the bandits rushed aboard. The patrol was dropping in a swift spiral. I watched tensely, holding Jetta, with the turmoil of the embarking bandits around me. Guterres stood with leveled weapon. They have not moved, Commander. The boar was here. The treasure was aboard. Ready, Hans. Lift us. The landing ports clanged as they closed. Hans shoved at his switches. I heard the helicopter engines thumping. A vertical lift. There was no space in this rocky defile for any horizontal takeaway. He was very calm, this De Boer. He sat in a chair at a control bank of instruments unfamiliar to me. Full power, Hans. I tell you, lift us. The ship was quavering. We lifted. The rocks of the gully dropped away. But the patrol ship was directly over us. Was De Boer rushing into a collision? Now, forward, Hans. We poised for a level flight. Did De Boer think he could outdistance this patrol ship, the swiftest type flyer in the service? I knew that was impossible. The silver ship overhead was circling, watchful. As we leveled for forward flight, it shot a warning searchlight beam down across our bow, ordering us to land. De Boer laughed. They think they have us. I saw his hand go to a switch. A warning siren resounded through our corridor, warning the bandits of De Boer's next move. But I did not know it then. The thing caught me unprepared. De Boer flung another switch. My senses reeled. I heard Jetta cry out. My arm about her tightened. A moment of strange whirling unreality. The control room seemed fading about me. The tube lights dimmed. A green glow took their place. A lurid sheen in which the cubby and the tense faces of De Boer and Hans showed with ghastly pallor. Everything was unreal. The voices of De Boer and Hans sounded with a strange tonelessness, stripped of the timber that made one differ from the other, hollow ghosts of human voices. By the sound I could not tell which was De Boer and which was Hans. The corridor was dark. All the lights on the ship faded into this horrible dead green. The window beside me had a film on it a dead, dark opening where moonlight had been. Then I realized that I was beginning to see through it once more. Starlight. Then the moonlight. We had soared almost level with the descending patrol ship. We went past it, a quarter of a mile away. Went past, and it did not follow. It was still circling. I knew then what had happened, and why this bandit ship had seemed of so strange an aspect. We were invisible. 
At four hundred yards, even in the moonlight, the patrol ship could not distinguish us. Only ten of these ex-flyers were in existence. They were the closest secret of the U.S. Army Anti-War Department. No other government had them except in impractical imitations. I had never seen one before. But this bandit ship was one. And I recalled that a year ago a suppressed dispatch intimated that the service had lost one, wrecked in the lowlands and never found. So this was that lost invisible flyer? De Boer, using it for smuggling, with Perona and Spawn as partners. And now, De Boer making away in it with Spawn's treasure. The bandit's hollow, toneless, unreal chuckle sounded in the gruesome, lurid green of the control room. I think that surprised them. The tiny silver shape of the baffled local patrol ship faded behind us as we flew northward over heavy, fantastic crags, far above the tiny twinkling lights of the village of Narita, out over the sullen dark surface of the Nerese Sea. End of chapter 12 End of section 13